his theme is the kingdom of God is near. So the kingdom of God is not political, it's not geographic, it's the, the rule or the reign of God. So everywhere God's will is done, that's an expression of his kingdom. So when people are, when you forgave somebody this week, that was an expression of the kingdom of God. That was you choosing to live under the reign and rule of God. Um, when justice is done, or um, righteousness, or loving your enemies, or any of the things that we know are important to God, when those things are carried out here in the earth, those are expressions of his kingdom. We could say his kingdom is coming to earth because his will is being done here among us. And what he expects from us when this invitation is issued, the kingdom of God is here, the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand. What he's looking for from us is a response. And that response is repent and believe this good news. Repent is turn. So we turn from everything that's not God towards everything that is. We turn from wickedness and evil and unrighteousness towards righteousness in Jesus and all the things that he embodies. And we believe, which doesn't just mean think, it means trust. Base your life on the fact that you now live under the rule and reign of God. That looks like following Jesus. We did that a couple of weeks ago. And last week we talked about evidence of the kingdom coming. Like Jesus said this, but you know, if somebody said, well, prove it. You said the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is near. Well, where's your proof? You're just, for all I know, you're just talking. And he, throughout his ministry, there are two things that he does repeatedly to prove that the kingdom is coming, and especially that the kingdom is coming through him. One is he delivers people who are demonized. We talked about that last week. You can go back and listen to the message of that just want a little more clarification on what we meant by demonized, but he delivers those people, which is uh, an expression of the fact that he is stronger than Satan. Satan has the people under his control, and Jesus sets them free, and basically beats up Satan and takes the guys from under his control. So there's, there, there is no neutral ground. There's a kingdom of light, and there's a kingdom of darkness, and all of the ground for the kingdom of light comes at the expense of the kingdom of darkness. He's taking ground back from the enemy, and when you see someone delivered from a, from a from demonic oppression or control, or however you want to phrase that, when you see that, that's a that's a visual demonstration for all of us. See, the kingdom of light is, is advancing, it's taking back ground. And the second thing we saw was Jesus. Throughout his ministry, Jesus physically healed them. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought that, the result of that sin was death. Death was brought into the world, and the way most of us are going to die is through sickness. There, there are some trauma, some accidents, things like that. But in general, most of the people who are going to die, we're going to die because our body breaks. Sickness leads to death in a lot of cases. When Jesus healed somebody, he was stopping that. He was breaking that link. He was saying, see, I'm, I'm reversing the curse from Genesis 3. I'm turning back the clock to Genesis 1 and 2 when sickness did not rule, sickness did not reign, and death absolutely was not part of the picture. We see that more when we see him actually raise someone from the dead. That's a big flag in the ground. And for now, we see him physically healing people as an expression, saying, see, I'm overcoming the effects of sin, even the effects that are present in our bodies. So today we're picking up from there, verse 32 in Mark 1. That evening, so this is after he's gone to Peter's mother-in-law's house, and he's healed her. She had a fever. So that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place 
where he prayed. But the first few verses, just for some context, this is what Jesus had done the night before. Who knows how many people, hundreds, maybe, maybe even more, uh, had come to him looking for help. They, they'd seen, hey, here's a guy who heals people. Here's a guy who helps people who seem to be under the influence of the devil. And so they're bringing him, this whole town turn, they're bringing him to him. At some point, he's done. He goes to bed. Most likely in this scenario, he's sleeping in a house with 10 or 20 other folks. It says very early in the morning, he got up and got to a solitary place where he could pray. But I want us to grab onto I'm alone with God. This idea of prioritizing solitude with God. You don't need to get hung up on the details. Jesus got up very early because everybody else got up early. They got up early and went to work. So if he wanted to be alone, he had to beat them, which meant very early. He went off to a solitary place because there were 10 or 15 people staying in the house with him. If he wanted any space to himself, he had to leave and go out. It doesn't mean if you want to be alone with the Lord, you've got to get up before the sun comes up and go to the mountain. You can do that if you want to. That's those are details. If everybody in your house is gone by 7:30, then let them leave. You can say I'm sleeping late, so I can be alone with the Lord. You can get up at eight and do your own whatever. The point is solitude with Him, not the specifics of what that looks like. Glory. Oh, Simon and his companions went to look for Jesus. And when they found Him, they exclaimed, "Everyone is looking for you." So Jesus is. He's away in some solitary place. The disciples come looking for him, and they bring with them expectations and needs. Everybody is looking for him. It could have been everybody from last night, and they want to have a big thank you breakfast. It, but most likely, it was everybody went and talked to everybody else. And so it's more sick people. It's more people who need to be helped. You know, somebody's healed, and they go tell their aunt or their uncle or their friend in the next town, hey, there's this guy, and he's healing people. You've got to come. And so they've gathered this morning for Jesus to come and minister to them the way that he had the night before. There's no reason for the disciples to think they've done anything wrong. Their experience with Jesus, this is what he does. He heals people and he takes care of people who have demonic problems. So of course, they bring in the people to him. Expectations and needs. For some of you, this is all you need to hear. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. What you need to hear is sometimes it's okay to leave. Expectations, needs, good things are presented in the And what Jesus says is, I'm out. I'm going somewhere else. The reason I came is to bring this message, this good news. I'm not going to go back down the hill to take care of these right There's so many people the freedom to know this. Sometimes the most holy, righteous, obedient thing you can say. He walked away from all of them to obey. So here's step back, here's the thing. If your choices are being led by the Spirit, being driven by anything, driven by need, your own or somebody else's, driven by expectations, your own, somebody else's, being driven by relationships, whatever, deadlines, if your choices are being led by the Spirit, or being driven by anything else. I think most of us would say, I want to be led by the Spirit. That's the way I want to live. Paul talks about walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. We look at Jesus and this rhythm of life that he maintains, and we say, I, I want that. I want to know what it is to be led by the Spirit. Well, here's a picture practically, and it just concrete. This is what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. That, that's what we want. 
first thing you need to do is you've got to figure out how to spend time among God on a regular basis. I'm not going to define regular every day, every other day, five days a week, whatever. You just need to figure out how to regularly be alone with God. You have to wake up at five, and you wake up at five. There, there aren't excuses for this. Jesus spent the whole night before dealing with doing a lot of God stuff. So our world, we might say, maybe we are put in this time. He's done all. He's done enough righteous activity. Can he sleep in the next day? He doesn't sleep in. He gets up extra early so he can pull away and spend time alone with God. And we have got to figure out how to incorporate that into our lives. For some, you'd rather get a roof now than try to figure out how much. It just doesn't work for you. I don't know if you have you have ADD or you don't read very well or you don't understand the Bible or you think prayer is stupid because you don't know who you're talking to or you don't want to write in a journal because that's for girls or whatever your thing is that you do. I don't know, but we all have there are reasons why we don't do this. And all I want to encourage you without guilting, you have got to figure out how to incorporate regular time alone with God into your schedule. Again, you, you define regular. It's more than once a month, that's for sure. Read, worship, pray, listen. I, I don't care what you do. It just needs to be your time where you are pulling, you're doing what we just read in verse 35. Me and God, we're, we're going to do this over here. Being in a corporate worship setting incredibly important. Small groups, important life-giving relationships we talk about all the time, vital. But if you don't have an, an independent personal relationship with God, you're never going to learn how to be led by the Spirit because you don't know what He sounds like. You don't know His voice. You won't know when He's trying to lead you throughout the day. You won't know what's in here. God, we've said before, God doesn't give suggestions. He doesn't give advice. He gives and he expects us to obey them. He's looking for us to wrap our life around the priorities that we have. Jesus knew very specifically, this is my thing, this is my mission, this is my deal, this is my assignment, it's to preach this good news. Some of you know things that specifically. And God wants you to wrap your life around it. For some of you, you don't. You don't have a clue what your specific thing is. Then love God, love people, and make disciples. That applies to all of us. The great community to love God and love people the Great Commission to make disciples in all the nations. Those are God's priorities. He's made it very plain and He expects us to shape our life around those things. We talked last year, if you remember, you don't. We talked last year about the difference between wine and wineskins. Wineskins, that's our lifestyle. The wine, that's the, the revelation or the, the priorities, the things that God wants us to be about. And He expects us to have a wineskin, a lifestyle that's conducive to the life, to the wine that He's given to us. So whatever you feel like he's put in your heart to do, he expects you to do that. The same thing for me. We have to pull away and spend time with him. And none of that works. We're not going to know what he's doing. We're not going to know what his priorities are. We're not going to have any sense of what he's about. Y'all have all been in traffic on 75, right? Everybody has. So there are multiple ways people deal with traffic in terms of trying to maneuver through it. Some people look for an 18-wheeler. Figure an 18 wheeler has a CB to another 18 wheeler to another 18, and somehow they've got some inside information. So some people get behind an 18 wheeler, put my trust in what he's doing. Other folks, more analytical, what you might do is look at all the cars to your left and right, and then you set a point. 
there's that bridge. And I'm going to see who gets to the bridge first. And that's how I'm going to know which lane is the fastest. Some of you do that. It's a, it's a race. It's a game. And that way you have some objective reasoning for which lane you choose to get into. Others, you look and you say, this is the dirty people among us. You see what lane everybody's getting out of, and you assume that's where the problem is. So that's the lane you get into, presuming upon somebody else's kindness to let you in later. I won't let you in. There is no question. If you have an out-of-state tag, I'll let you in. But if you don't, you know what you're doing. There are consequences to your actions. And mine is I'm going to keep driving. I'm going to be right up on that guy in front of me. Some of you do that. Some of you, you're different. You're more of a crowd follower. You see what lane everyone else is getting into, then you get into that lane. Figure, well, maybe the herd knows. Some people, maybe you pray. God, what lane? You probably will tell you to take Marta. But you can pick. You can do that. Some people, it's gut. I just know this is whatever. We all have these different ways of trying to navigate through traffic. But they're all the same. They're all ground level. If you want to know, the best thing you can do is turn on your radio to AM 750 and listen to Captain Hurt. Skycopter, skyplane traffic. He will tell you, here's the wreck, here's what lanes are closed, here how, here's the backup, and here's an alternate way to get where you need to go. That's what pulling away and spending time with God does. It gives you high-level perspective. Nobody else is in the helicopter. Our lives are lived on the ground. Opportunities, deadlines, relationships, needs, wants, desires, expectations, schedules, all of that stuff, it just comes at us. And all we're trying to do is figure out how to get through. We just want to navigate through. And we all have different ways of coping. And some people have daytimers, and some people have blackberries, and some people have write notes and sticky notes, and some people take make goals, and some people have objectives, and some people... And some folks just keep just shut their eyes and I'm going to do this. Whatever. We all have these ways of dealing with the stuff that's coming at us. But the thing that's the same about all of them is it's, it's ground level. There's no perspective. Because God's the only one who's sitting up above everything who can tell you this is what's going on. Here are the roadblocks. Here's the way you need to walk. If we're not regularly spending time alone with Him, we've got no hope. We'll get it right every now and again. Just out of dumb luck, you pick the right lane. But if you want clarity to know how am I supposed to navigate through, you've got to pull away and talk to the guy who has the best perspective, who can provide that clarity. So whatever that looks like, whatever it takes for you to do that. Another thing, some of us, we get set in our routine. Some of you love it. You, you have your quiet time and you know this is not hard for you and you're feeling really good about yourself right now because... You do it five or six or seven days a week and it's locked in and you've got... That's great. Others of you, you've tried things and they haven't worked. Now just try something else. At some point you might get bored with what you're doing, so do something else. Read a different translation. If you already know what's coming next in your Bible, then get a different one. They all have the same stories. They just use different language sometimes. It'll make you think. If you normally sit down and are real quiet, then go... Take a run or a walk. Pray outside every now and again. See what that does in terms of repositioning you. You get that. Y'all aren't dumb. Just figure some way out of regularly spending time with the Lord. And if what you're doing doesn't work, don't quit. Do something else. And if that doesn't work, don't quit. Do something else. And if that doesn't work, don't quit. Do something else. We have to figure that out if we want clarity. So that's, that's the first thing. You pull out, spend time with God. That gives you clarity. 
what that clarity then allows you to do is to discern what's a distraction, which is bad, and what's an interruption, which is good. Distractions pull you off course. What Peter and the disciples were bringing to Jesus, that was a distraction. Jesus knew, I've got to get out to all these other towns and bring this message. And what Peter and the disciples are saying, with the wonderful hearts, come back down here, take care of our town again. He'd already taken care of their town. They'd already heard the message. They'd already seen the stuff. And they're saying, come back again. That's a distraction that's pulling him away from his target. Distractions are bad. We need to, we say no to those interruptions. Some people call those, who grew up in church, people call those divine appointments. What Dick was sharing about with this guy, this missionary he ran into on the airport strip. That's an interruption. That wasn't, neither one of those guys planned that encounter. Either one of them, I don't think, woke up in the morning and God said, you're going to need another white man. You're going to be wearing a blue flannel shirt. But that wasn't it. It was a divine appointment. God brought these two guys together so they can encourage each other. And so Dick can invite him to the men's conference next year. All of those types of things. We'll look at this story in a few weeks. Uh, there's a guy, his name is Jairus, and he's a big time. He paid for this synagogue his daughter's dying, and so the Jews come to Jesus and say, you got to take care of his daughter. This guy's been good to us. And so he starts walking toward this Jairus' house to take care of his daughter, and, and there's a big crowd, and a lady grabs onto his, the hem of his robe and says, if I touch him, I know I'm going to get healed, and she does, and Jesus stops and says, what power just left? What happened? He starts looking around. And so I was like, come on, man. Everybody's going Just keep going. He says, no. And he stops the whole procession there, figures out, it's this woman comes forward at me, turns out she's been bleeding I think it was 18 years, something like that. And he talks to her, ministers to her, and restores her in that moment. That's not a distraction. That was an interruption. That was, you could say, that was a divine orchestration of events. And for us, we need to know the difference because they look the same on the outside. It's hard for any of us to know, is this a distraction? Is this going to pull me away from the things that God wants to do? Or is this an interruption? Is this His way of orchestrating circumstances to actually accomplish His will? If you don't have clarity, which comes from spending time alone with God, all you've got is guessing. Which again, you're going to get right some of the time, but don't you want to be right all of the time, or at least most of the time? That's that clarity that allows you to distinguish what's an interruption, what's a distraction. Your time alone with the Lord is not going to give you a flow chart for the day. That day you're going to do this, and then you're going to do that. And it's not how it works. It's not going to give you an itinerary that you can keep all these appointments. It's just, it's, it's a reprioritizing. It, it's a, it gives perspective. Just being with Him, you see things a little bit different. It sensitizes your heart to His voice and to His leading. So then when you're going through your day, you're a little more aware of, oh, wait, this, this could be the Lord. Or that's, that's pulling me away. I know the things that He's put in front of me for that. Second thing you'll get, spending time up with the Lord. One is clarity, and the second is courage or conviction. It's not enough to have clarity. You actually have to have the courage and conviction to live that clarity out. And you see that with Jesus. He said no to Peter. Which, allowed, which was saying yes to God. If you want to be led by the Spirit, at some point, saying yes to the leadings of the Holy Spirit are going to cause you to say no to people. Even wonderful people, even good people, even people you love, asking you to do wonderful things. That's all Peter was doing. I feel for Peter. 
He's not in his own hometown. He's in his mother-in-law's And so you know everybody realizes, you know what? Peter, he has an end with Jesus. And Jesus is healing all these people. So you know all these guys are coming up to Peter saying, hey, can you get me? I, I got a, my cousin has the rash. And all these people are trying to get, use Peter to get to Jesus. And it's not, again, it's not his turf. It's his in-laws' turf. He wants to look good in front of his in-laws. So I'm sure he's, you know, the night before everything worked fine. Jesus healed everybody. Everybody's happy. Maybe Peter's the local hero. I don't know. So the next day, there's more people. Hey, Peter, what a... And so he goes to find Jesus. I'm betting he's a little stressed. Jesus, where is he? You wake up in the morning and he's gone. Goes and he finds him. Man, crap. Let's, let's do this. And Jesus says, no. He knew what it meant to Peter. But it was a distraction. I don't think he said no in a rude, rude or a cold or a heartless, callous way. I think it was, no, I'm not do that way. This is what we came to do. And even if it embarrassed Peter, you have to go back and say, I'm sorry, it's not, not coming back. Jesus would have the courage, the conviction, to say no to Peter in order to say yes to the Holy Spirit. Again, what Peter was asking wrong with that. Based on Jesus' track record, there's no reason for him to think Jesus was He did presume upon him, but there was no reason. He had good based on what he'd seen the night before. Why would he think Jesus If Jesus was the Messiah, he needed a crowd. He needed an army. He needed a father. So Peter could say, see, I'm helping you out. I'm bringing some folks. They need to hear this too. Get that. For you. The clarity to know what's a distraction and what's an interruption, then the courage or the conviction to make the call. No, I'm not doing that. Some of you need to hear again loud and clear. Sometimes the most holy and righteous and obedient thing you can say is no. And you don't have to have a reason. No is enough. You don't have to have any, you don't have you know I have something else to do. Just say no. all day. I've been emailing. I've been calling. I've been leaving messages. No. Not. You just stop there. Put in your heart. You know, I, that's, that's pulling me off track. Either for right now or for the next. Some of you are overcommitted. You don't make little commitments. You make big ones. You have a big sucker written across your forehead. Everybody knows who to call. He'll do it. He can't say no. We know she'll say yes. Start saying no if it's pulling you away from these things that you know God's calling you to. It's taking you away from being led by the Spirit. Some of you, you're, this whole idea of pulling away, you're like, great, I can pull away, but my whole day is already spoken for. My week is already spoken There's no time. I can't be interrupted or distracted because there's no room for any of them. You're double booked. There's no space at all. You don't need... Clarity's not going to help you. Because there's no space for you to live with clarity. Step back. Be led by the Spirit, not driven by other people's expectations or your own, by other people's needs or your own, by deadlines. Allow the Spirit to lead you as He will. Next verse. Shifting here. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you're willing, you can make me clean. I've told you all before, I don't love this. We talked last week about healing and we kind of scratch the surface. We're going to keep talking about it because Jesus heals people throughout Mark. And so as we walk through 
will get a little bit deeper, a little more nuanced. I don't love the whole idea of praying for someone to be healed and saying, God, if it's your will. For me, that's an expression of doubt. And if it's an expression of doubt for you, then don't pray it. For this guy, it was an expression of respect and submission. It's the only I, I looked through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the only guy who I could find who approached Jesus and said, if you will. Other people came to him begging. Other people came pleading earnestly. Some people were brought to him. There's no exchange. We don't know what they said. Other people just kind of run into him on the road. Some people shout at him. The common denominator, common thread in each of those stories, regardless of how they approach, and it doesn't matter how you approach, what matters is are you approaching for this? That's what this guy had also. If you're willing, you can make me clean. He was 100% confident. And for us, when it comes to physical healing, you know, I think most of us probably at the bottom of the learning curve. I think for us, for right now, what we need to grab on approach him believing that means you have to approach him every day for a week or for a month or for a year that's okay just do that knowing he can heal you don't put a bunch of qualifiers around him he's not going to do anything that's not his will anyway he doesn't need your permission for that so you can just, just step back tell him what you want God I want you to fix and I believe and leave it there Somebody after the nine service said, one thing you didn't mention was how short Jesus' prayers are, for lack of a better word. I'm willing. Be clean. And the thing is, Jesus had authority, so he didn't have to use a lot of words. For us, because we're unsure, we just start babbling on and on and on. Let's just stop. And let's say, I don't know if you will, but I know you so I'm going to bring this to you and ask you as your son or as your daughter. If it doesn't, if you don't do it today, I'm going to come back tomorrow. And at some point, we'll talk about this later. You might say, quit. I'm not going to fix it. You can quit. Until he tells you to quit, why don't you just keep bringing that to him? Approach him. Boldly. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him he was cured. This idea of compassion, it's an emotion, but it motivates or moves to action. Throughout Jesus' ministry, it says he's moved with compassion or filled with compassion. He and did something. He heals people, he teaches people, he feeds people. And for this, in this case, it caused him to touch a guy who he wasn't supposed to touch. You don't touch a leper because a leper's unclean and uncleanness, for lack of a better word, is contagious. It's going to get on you. He's unclean socially and religiously, so if you touch him, then you are also because you had contact with them. I don't know if this is true. The things that I've heard are lepers had to walk around yelling, leper, le- or unclean, 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 so everybody else would get out of the way. So they didn't accidentally brush up against somebody or touch somebody's stuff, which would then make the stuff unclean. Or the person, Jesus cuts through all of that and reaches out and grabs this thing. Two things, two questions for us. One, who's the leper in your world? Think through your circle. Who's the guy? Who's the girl? The outcast. The one that you roll your eyes to make come around. Who is that person? When was the last time you were moved with that Especially, it's for everybody. I'm thinking, guys, when was the last time you could say, I was moved with that? It caused it, it 
active on that. It's not sissy to be moved with compassion. It's a deep-seated emotion. Respond to feelings. And if you never feel there's a, there's a part of you that's not connecting with who God is. I don't mean that in a rude way. Just fine. When was the last time you were moved with compassion? And one of the things that we see from Jesus is it's not that uncleanness is contagious, it's that cleanness. Rather than Jesus becoming unclean by touching a leper, the leper becomes clean from contact with Jesus and us. We're salt. Everything that salt touches becomes salty. Salt doesn't start to taste like french fries. French fries taste salty. That's us. We affect the environment that we're in. Yes, we don't want to be dumb and reckless and all of that. But we need to recognize for all of us, at some point, we want to have any impact in our world, whatever, however big or small your world is. We need to come in contact with people who need Jesus. Talk about this parable in a few weeks. The kingdom of God is like a little pinch of leaven that's worked into a batch of dough. And eventually it permeates the entire lump of dough. Your small, seemingly insignificant, maybe unnoticeable acts of obedience, these expressions of the kingdom that maybe think, I'm making a difference. I'm in a company of a thousand. What is my little, small bit of kindness or peace? Or what, how does that even work? I don't know, but it works. The kingdom eventually wins. And if we'll be faithful to express the realities of the kingdom in our world, over time, we'll see it leaven the entire batch that we're in. Wrap it up. Jesus sent this guy away at once with a strong warning. That's important. Strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Priests, um, they were the referees. They decided to obtain one. But Jesus sends this guy back so the referee can say, yes, you're clean. You're back in the club. You become a temple. You don't have to be considered an outcast anymore. Instead, this guy went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news, which is with you soon. You probably would do the same thing. If you've been an outcast for however much of your life, and suddenly you were clean, you'd probably tell everybody what was going on. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Some people who kind of study this stuff, they call that the Messianics. Jesus was the Messiah that he didn't want people to know, because everyone had preconceived notions of what that would be. Well, Messiah's going to be a political, military ruler. He's going to gather an army. He's going to attack Rome. He's going to, they're going to overthrow Rome and reestablish Jerusalem. And the Jews as God's chosen people here on earth. He's going to rule through them. Jesus, that's not what he, it's not the way he worked. And so he didn't want the word getting out. That's why he says, all these demons on the same. They knew who he was and he shut them up as well. He wanted to define who he was and what he was doing. For us, the, the takeaway from all of that is we don't obey because we understand. We obey because we trust. This guy probably didn't see any harm in telling people what had happened. He might have thought Jesus was just being modest. Oh, he's just saying not to tell other folks. You see it impacted the way Jesus works. He said, I'm supposed to go into all these other towns and talk. And then because of this guy's blabbermouth, because he was disobedient, Jesus couldn't go into all these towns. He still accomplished 
the purposes. God works around those things. But it was, it had an effect on Jesus' ministry. And the same thing is for us. There might be people in this room, I imagine there are, just like God has asked you to do something and you don't understand why. You can't see the end game. How does that work? Or you don't know why it matters. It seems so silly or so insignificant. Just go to the airstrip half an hour or whatever it is. And you're delaying obedience because you can't figure out why it's important. My encouragement to you is to go ahead and obey. We don't obey because we understand. We obey because we trust. If you trust the God who gives you the instructions, you can obey the instructions even if you can't figure out how everything plays together. He's working in your life and in the lives of everybody else that you know. He works in ways that we get and he works in ways that we don't. And if we start checking our obedience based on our understanding, that's a whole lot of risk in the middle. That just slows everything down. It stops young everything. We want to step back and say, you know what, I'm going to obey because I trust the guy who told me to obey. Whatever that looks like. Whether I can see it or because I run into the guy at the airstrip and I can say, oh, this makes sense. Or I don't. So that's